Hello, my name is Christine Murray, Editor-in-Chief of The Developer, and welcome to The Developer Podcast, where we talk about how to design and develop cities worth living in, which often has to do with the spaces between the buildings, as much as the buildings themselves. Radical Rethink is the developer's call for radical ideas to revolutionize public spaces, the way we make the spaces between the buildings. Policy, design, process, procurement, research, any of these things can help us rethink our approaches to make places where people thrive. Radical Rethink is an idea developed by Will Sandy and supported by Vestra. This idea that we need new ideas for public space. We need policymakers, planners, designers, academics, and thinkers to come together. In a way, we need to push for new ways of working. And it's actually an idea that we developed before COVID, but became even more important after. So if you've got an idea, whether it's a radical design or a policy shift, all you have to do is email it to editorial at thedeveloper.live. But this morning, I'm going to be talking to Will Sandy about how we came up with this call for radical rethink and what we're looking for. I think it's always best to start with who you are and what you do. So tell me about you. Uh, hi, Christine. Uh, I'm Will Sandy. I am a trained landscape architect. I've gone through most of the motions of the professional practice. Um, and then on completing a postgraduate, founded my own studio at the encouragement of my then tutors, um, which has been a kind of interesting learning curve that's taken me into all aspects of design because you have to diversify to make a living. And so I you know, worked in advertising, exhibition design, garden design, sculpture, art, um, which is kind of a broad landscape. So sort of stretching the terms a little bit. Um, and then you kind of get into garden design as most you know, like architects do extensions, landscape architects do gardens. Um, and then from there you start doing competitions and various other bits and bobs. And from there, the edible bus stop sort of came around. So I founded that with Matt Gilchrist in 2011 and we started doing community or social interventions across London and beyond. Yeah, tell me a bit more about those because I think the Edible Bus Stop is quite interesting around the social interventions and how that started. Yeah, so um, my former well, co-founder of the Edible Bus Stop, Mac, um, former fashion model. So again, completely sort of sideways into the industry, I guess, um, but with a passion for design and people. Uh, she discovered a planning application for a piece of ad hoc land in the community down in Stockwell, South London, and wasn't keen on it and wanted to discuss it with the community. So flyered the neighborhood, got people talking, everyone met in the pub and sort of said, you know, this is kind of our breathing space. All right, it's a bit run down. It's, you know, raised to the ground every year by the council, but it's the gap in the buildings effectively that kind of gives us that space as we walk to work or home or to the tube. And somebody said, uh, hey, someone's kind of guerrilla garden, you know, this kind of idea of seed bombing and kind of growing your own in the streets. And everyone smiled subconsciously or acknowledging it and kind of all, all had realized it had happened without really seeing it. And so they organized to meet the week after. And I think 40 people showed up and they just cleaned the space. And I guess this was at a time when community gardening is sort of socks and sandals and tires and pallets sort of down back alleys of streets. and this was putting it front and center in the public eye on the street next to a bus stop, cars going by and people asking questions. And I think that was a really exciting moment. Um, and then um, 
yeah, we've kind of discussed the idea of growing food, that kind of engagement, you know, the delayed gratification you get over growing fruit and vegetables that we, again, are becoming more akin to understanding with the food markets and farmers markets. But ultimately, we still don't see it. We still don't see the process. We see them end up in our brown paper bags or at Whole Foods or even in Aldi or wherever. But it is a bit more inclusive than a rose bush. You know, you go to Regent's Park or wherever, it's beautiful but it's not yours. You're not working with it. You look at it and you walk past it. But being a, an edible bus stop, effectively, everyone can be part of the process. There was no signs to say yes or no, or you must or you mustn't. Um, and that also gave it a sense of respect because even the youngsters were like, well, actually my mum's working on it or my sister's been growing that fruit. Or So you kind of had this weird sense of surveillance without that kind of acknowledgement. And the community started to galvanize. Um, and then that became, that was three years. So, you know, we had the luxury of kind of engagement and conversation. And then we started doing pop-ups. We said, look, no, this is great, but we need to get it out to a wider audience. And so through art and fashion and sculpture and kind of provocations, effectively, we did International Parking Day in 2011 with no real knowledge of, what we were doing or how we were doing it. Okay, we cut, you know, I work in the festivals as well. So there's a sense of that can do, like make it happen. But, and we got sort of semi permission from the council because we've been working on the highways already with the edible bus stop. Um, so we took over five parking bays by the South Bank. And one of them had a full forest in that you could climb up in, and all the trees were named with a bit of folklore and kind of where they came from in the world if they weren't native to the UK. One of them was an abstraction of a road with some wheelbarrows driving down a green, green high road. Um, a 1959 El Camino pickup truck completely planted with a bay tree in the back that we obviously had to call the parking bay. And then Mac had curated this green carpet. So we had a sustainable fashion show with some of London's sort of upcoming sustainable fashion designers now part of the fashion revolution movement. We had two fashion shows, music, performing arts, a remote control traffic cone. And then a kind of formal garden with olive trees and gravel and kind of lawn. And, you know, these five different things all sort of responded to different ways people observe space. But ultimately, we made a lot of people miss their trains. Um, we made a lot of people kind of just stop in their tracks. And, and I guess that sort of started to really ground the idea for me of you don't know what you've got till it's gone. And I guess this whole thing of the pandemic maybe is started to see these pop up interventions to accommodate the need for more space to social distance or physically distance. And International Parking Day, I guess, you know, stemming from San Francisco, comes from with that kind of can-do attitude. But I, I really enjoy the fact that you take it away and people go, oh, did you see it? Oh, I didn't see it. Or, um, again, with the work I've been doing in Venezuela with the Capitalist Cube, this kind of temporary pavilion that asks questions, you have the ability to get it wrong. And that's part of the process, I think. It's almost a performances process. So it's a much more engaging thing than beautiful renders on a wall or in a book or on a website. It's actually allowing people to physically interact with the space and be part of the process. And they can go, well, actually, I don't like it. But then they know what they might like because they've seen something in the space that they just kind of, you know, we walk like synombolists through London straight to work. You know, you've got your coffee guy and your paper man and whatever. And it's that breaking out of that to kind of start to question the space and I guess the pandemic's done that we've removed the cars we've 
started to explore streets again. Kids are playing, start getting the chalk out. You know, the chalk revolution has been really exciting just to wander around London and see children reclaiming the streets with artwork and hopscotch and different things and the cars having to kind of respect their decisions rather than the other way around. And so I think, yeah, you know, that's, that's sort of the journey we went on and we ended up doing lots of different things and then it became more commercialized. So developers would come to us and the whole meanwhile stuff. And I think that's what's interesting about your, when we talk about, you know, your, your journey, but also this, this, these different scales, obviously, from very small to very big, but also the fact that you've done ground up and then pop up uh, type meanwhile stuff, which is kind of in between. It's not quite ground up, but it's kind of temporary. So it's experimental um, and, and usually involves some kind of community engagement. And then let's go into your other work, which is maybe you know, on a team with a developer in a master plan. And, and how, is, how is that for you compared to these other interventions? Um, you know, there, there are some pioneering developers in, in, the, in the UK, predominantly in London, um, who are bringing us in early. But ultimately, we are the last consultant to be appointed and the first part of work to get value engineered out. And I get it, you know, you need, you need to get bums on seats or people in flats or occupancy rates up. But we're, I think we've started to reevaluate. And even before pandemic, like the lockdown, we were understanding the value of green space, whether that be the climate emergency that's pressing ahead um, or, you know, the trees that are being removed due, due to HS2 and how that could be a bit more sensitive. You know, there's, there's a whole remit and stuff like that. But Biophilia has become a word and you see it across, you know, from the sun to the standard to vogue, that kind of need to be within green space. And we're now seeing it being prescribed or at least starting to be prescribed with the NHS. And you've got this whole new cycle campaign, this kind of active travel. And I think, where does that take place? That takes place on the streets, in the spaces. You know, you look at some of the greatest cities in the world and the spaces between the buildings of what makes them. You've got the Ramblas in Barcelona or various other kind of big piazzas or plazas. That's where the stuff happens. And the buildings sit and are a beautiful backdrop. And I'm not saying that the two shouldn't work, but it's always, or seems like a disconnect. Like the interior and the exterior are kind of two separate entities. And, and most of our great joy, I think, when we were locked in, and even the studies that show, you know, the view from your hospital window or the view from your flat. I mean, certainly when we could not go out, um, the view became so important. And the greener it was, the kind of more you appreciated the sound of the birds or the rustle of the leaves or all of these um, sights and sounds were really comforting, I think, in this time where you kind of felt like your home was your only <laughs> real avenue. Um, and of course, what were people doing in other countries? They were getting out onto their balconies. They were kind of getting out onto their front stoops, you know, to try to get as much um, of that connection into the public space as they could for other people. But also, I think just that sense that it's outside that, you know, we experience a lot of wellness in getting outside. Um, and we experience a lot of, um, and not to say the interiors aren't important, because of course, that's comfort and shelter and that safety and all of those, you know, and sleep and all of those things. But um, there is, a, a, both are, are so critical to that state of mental health. And when you remove one, the other one just becomes uh, intolerable, I think. So, um, but I think what I would, 
what I wanted to talk about now is that that frustration in your piece, I mean, which kind of led us to do this radical rethink initiative. But I think the, the frustration that you ex expressed when you kind of came to me and was like, we need to get some new ideas. We need to, you know, really start get people thinking in a new way. I mean, maybe talk about that frustration, where it comes from and where you hope it'll, it'll lead to. But basically, um, the origin of that frustration and what you're hoping to spur on through radical rethink. I think if I, you know, go right back to the beginning when I embarked on the landscape architecture journey, you know, I got bought every Alan Titchmarsh garden book there was known to man, every auntie, every gran, every member of the family went, oh, I've got you the latest, you know, Monty Don book or whatever. And I'm, wow, that's great. Thanks. But, you know, and I'm not knocking gardeners. They're a great part of the industry, but it kind of completely undermines or, you know, creates, continues that misunderstanding of what landscape architecture is. And I said in the article that as soon as you add the word landscape to the word architects, it almost lo loses gravitas and completely creates this unknown. You know, it's only when you start to describe to people, oh, yeah, well, you know, are you skateboard? Oh, right. Well, you could actually design the skate park. And they kind of go, oh, I just thought you did the plants and the trees. And, you know, I've kind of always joked that we're more than pots and pergolas, but that's ultimately what we get given at the end of a project. It's like, well, that bit's done. The architect's bit done just knock a few trees in and then it's like, well, you're, you know, you're missing the point now because we could be part of an integrated process that doesn't just benefit the kind of the looks, the aesthetics, the visual amenity. It's an integrated process. We could look at water management. You got, you did a great talk with um, Robert Bray's guy the other day or the previously about the management and how he saved the guys a million pounds just through thinking collectively about water management. And, you know, I've mentioned that to a few developers and they kind of, I, I, here's prick up. Because that's, that's sound, you know, that's money in their pocket. But we're still perceived to be just, um, you know, pots and pergolas or greening or, you know, the nice bits, the picturesque, as I sort of noted in the, in the write-up. And so that, that level of frustration, you know, I'm optimistic that it's changing. We're seeing a kind of value back in space. Um, I've started using the term place value, and it's kind of a play on words of placing value on all, all elements and, and acknowledging our limitations. And that's not just to say, you know, architects need to get landscape, but what about the ecologists or the engineer? We can't all do it. And I use the example of the Olympic Park, but there are many others that that's where landscape led and kind of was the, the, the glue that kind of brought everyone together. You had some of the best architects doing some amazing stadiums and different bits, but the engineering was landscape led, you know, the ecology. Um, I'm sure Bridget next week in your conversation will have a different opinion, but I think it's great that that creates the platform for this discourse. And I think that's that approaching that project was approached as a park. Yeah. And it, and it's weird that we would think to approach a, a park differently, so differently to how we would approach the city, you know, where we, with this, when we approach the city, we divide it into little plots. But when you approach the park, it was like about ways and routes and experience of that. You know, the, you still had to figure out there are still roads and there are still huge paths to accommodate crazy amounts of people and all the amenities. So there's still all, lots of complication in terms of infrastructure and et cetera, just like there is in the city. But I, it's completely disjointed when you think about how our neighborhoods are designed you know we just we carve them up into separate areas we don't think this is the the neighborhood but then 
you know, what's, what's happening in that master planning meeting when you're going into, um, you know, you come, you get brought in late to that master plan. What's happened there? I mean, where has the thinking started from? Does it start from how many things do we have to get on this piece and then how to arrange them? Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to say I'm an expert on the larger master plans. It's something I've just started to embark on in the last couple of years just to kind of see if I can integrate the, the meanwhile or the, the kind of community and social from the beginning and have that kind of flexible information that you start to build agency early on. And then, you know, these master plans are 40 years plus some of them, if you look at Battersea or Canada Water, just to think of London ones. But, you know, the, the people who live there in phase one are going to change. We might be without cars in 30 years. So how can you say that phase five is relevant to us now and it's all gone through planning? And so I think we need more adaptive and flexible frameworks or master plans that start to continue the conversation through the process. And those who've then been there 10 years are part of the community, the existing community, that the ones that pre-existed them outside the red line were there. Um, it feels though you still get that line. Everyone can see it as they walk down the street where you've got a nice bit of paving end and then the crumbling bit of community or council paving starts. And it, it feels like that is, I've always said the red line is a great and probably one of the most exciting points on the plan. You know, seeing how that meshes with the community or the building opposite. But it's very rare still, I believe. And you know, I probably will be corrected, but I think the interface between blocks still is quite limited. The master plan gets set, that's kind of playing God. And then people divvy it up and you get some of the best architects doing the different things, but it still feels like there's a siloed approach or there's a, this is mine or the ego perhaps. You know, the, the world we work in is very ego driven and that's kind of creating these huge and wonderful kind of architectural pieces. But I think there needs to be a bit more grounded and a bit more conversation and get into disciplinary studios, but, you know, same disciplinary studios working on projects at the same time. I think that's where, you know, the collective thinking is where the impactful schemes will lie. And perhaps we need to measure the schemes on their impact and not just on the disease or AJ kind of photo shoot and cutting the ribbon with the mayor or whoever the dignitary is. And then everyone walks away and cries because there's um, washing on the balconies and an inflatable boat because they wanted to go out in the canal. I think that's part of the process, that kind of evolution of space. What do you think, um, how does the thinking of a landscape architect and their approach differ to say a master planner, architect, urban designer? I mean, good question. I think there's so many ways to be a landscape architect and I am just one of those many ways. And when I first started, people didn't think I was one. You know, it's taken me at least 10 years to gain kind of, I've been known because I've been a bit vocal, but um, to gain respect, it's taken that long to kind of go, you know, I'm doing Hampton Court Flower Show. Oh, well, that's a flower show. It's not landscape architecture. And then in recent years, the Landscape Institute is working quite heavily with the kind of RHS and that kind of movement. And so you then go, well, actually, is that landscape? What is landscape architecture? And for me, and, you know, seems quite sim simple everything everything that isn't a building is the landscape i think i think what i would like to know though is when you walk into that meeting as you maybe you know maybe it's unfair to kind of ask as a generalization about landscape architecture but when you walk into a master planning that you've come to late what do you see as some of the ways in which they would have benefited from your input earlier on what are some of the common things that you kind of feel have been missed by not taking a landscape approach 
Is it orientation or is it, um, is it even, you know, is it even the consideration of, of views or comfort? Is it, is it even just topography or is it almost an absence of thought or what do you see? I guess from my perspective, it's, um, ultimately place narrative. It's what, what and who is existing. And, and, you know, if you go back as far as, you know, Jane Jacobs has been saying this for years, celebrate the kind of champions and the, the existing great stuff and don't just eliminate and create the new. Um, and you can see that with these kind of box parks and different things. And, you know, I always say the idea that they've got to be more than beer and burgers because that's sort of signifying the change and not celebrating the existing. And so I think those, that process, we're in such bureaucratic times now that, albeit in the pandemic, because there's been a l- little bit more disruption and fast-paced change, but we've got time to be more engaging, but it's putting a value on how that works. And, you know, th- through the edible bus stop, the, the conversations, you know, we had three years to play to, to really understand the community. And that's definitely dem- demonstrated it because it's still managed by the community. It's now grown. The hospital opposite is involved. They've kind of changed the management structure all by themselves. The only thing that gets maintained by the council is some of the hard landscape and the tree. Everything else is done by the community, and that's because they felt part of the process from the get-go. But going into a meeting and saying, oh, well, actually, I'm going to spend six months working with the community, and you're not really going to see anything apart from some great funny videos or some really engaged conversations or some artwork. You build it, then it will, you'll really see the value. But it's not like a te- you know, technical drawing or a pack of documentation or anything like that or a piece of sculpture or you know, artwork. It, it really has to be that kind of loose level to, to buy in. Otherwise, it becomes fake. And then you sort of lose face again. So it's been a really interesting process. And I think taking my work when I've just gone, I've been over in Venezuela where they're in a very you know, tricky and testing time and designing without a community and without a space, but not wanting to be top down. And so how do you try and create something or a toolkit or a formula that allows them to still be part of the process? And so this idea of a modular system where they can reconfigure a cube and for me, it was more about what they would do with it. I had my ideas of, you know, it could be a stage or a, a backdrop for an exhibition or an ed- education space, but actually seeing them take it on and use it for things that I would never uh, have imagined. You know, the, the joke was always the, um, the piñata hook. And obviously from a, someone from the UK, that would never have come to mind, but it's, a, you know, part of their celebrations. So every birthday, every anniversary, it's get the piñata out, have it hung up, and it becomes this kind of extravagant, part of the party and so it's really getting under under the sort of skin of what communities want and we can kind of assume and you know guess effectively but um i think you know again i think the process is too fast it feels like you're constantly churning out stuff for not for stuff's sake because there's a you know there's a game but i think if we invest a bit more time early and spend a bit more time understanding what people want and perhaps the lockdown has given us that opportunity to reevaluate and understand how spaces work, what the value of you know, consumption. And we've all become much more localized. What happens when we go back into town? Should be quite interesting. And so there's this sense of um, wanting to do things differently 
wanting to do them differently before uh, and, and find kind of new ideas to how to, you know, whether we need to accelerate the, the ground up uh, or slow down the top down um, or come up with these kind of toolkits or formulas that, that can help um, the community to take on spaces or to be more engaged in spaces, improve those spaces and inform it. I mean, these are all kind of things that we're hoping are going to come out of Radical Rethink. We're kind of hoping people are going to, to tell us what, what, are, what are their ideas for, for policy changes or approaches um, that can help to, to unlock that, that, the way that we work and where it's going wrong and why ground up is so siloed from meanwhile, which is siloed from master planning, which is, uh, which is, are then broken down into lots of tiny silos, which then forget that, you know, we live in, in something that has fabric. It isn't just a, a you know, a quilt to be sewn together later. Uh, and people are actually living on those bits of fabric. And if you start chopping them up, you, you know, we really cause harm to them. So what are your hopes and dreams for those people out there are thinking like, I kind of have an idea, it's not really well formed or um, it's really well formed. Um, you know, what, should, what, what are you hoping to read when we get those kind of ideas across and what would your advice be to them uh, really about um, kind of direction, you know, if you've got an idea or you're this kind of person? I mean, at the Edible Bus Stop, we used to say, just dig it. When people said, oh, how do I start my own social gorilla gardening project or whatever and so I would just say just do it don't think about it obviously because this isn't been a time to do that but you know I've had conversations with filmmakers with dancers with architects with engineers and they're all going oh well, I've got an idea or this has been bugging me and I'm like well just throw it in it's only a couple of pages let's you know let's see what you've got um I will declare my interest if it's someone I know um but let's look at, you know, some tactical stuff. Let's look at some policy. I've kind of been jokingly saying it's policy to parklets and everything in between. It's, you know, that huge scale of kind of governmental level to kind of incremental stuff in your back garden or back street. And everything that could encompass that from, you know, biodiversity frameworks to, you know, engineering kind of challenges to sustainable sourcing, you know, looking at everything from Extinction Rebellion to ACAN from, you know, local governments, public practice, all of these kind of different initiatives are testing and challenging. You know, let's, let's provoke. I was, you know, thinking yesterday, perhaps Radical Rethink could become an annual thing, coming up against the other awards and go, you know, because it's radical this year doesn't mean it's radical next year. And I think this has got to evolve and adapt to become a kind of relevant thing every year, just because we've had this point of reflection. But, you know, every year we should take stock, evolve and rethink. Um, you know, radical. The, um, the ambition is just like let's let's get those you know get, let's, let's collect these ideas and disseminate them so that we can start working on them together. Because I think that'll be the next thing is once we get these ideas and what happens next. You know, well, we want we want people to come together around them and begin to. Yeah, I think this has got to be more than you know throw away a couple of pages that kind of make a magazine fold or a conversation piece. I think I'm really hoping that we see some energy. There's a demand, you know, we're seeing change with, you know, whether that statues being pulled down or streets being painted by, you know, subversive teams or artists making ch challenges. I think if we can, you know, with the developer, which is why I kind of approached you guys to do it, you've got that ear and that forum with 
people who are asking these questions, if, if they didn't, they wouldn't be talking to you. They'd be kind of carrying on in their own status quo, doing what they do, knocking up houses, creating neighborhoods in the best of their ability. And they're, they're still win awards, of course. You know, they're doing nice things, but they're not progressing in my head. You know, they're not creating these engaging places and landscapes. So, you know, through these kind of bite-sized talks or through the festival when that comes out, I would hope that we've kind of aligned people with their ideas to professionals, experts, academics, policymakers, whoever they need to be with. And then there might be developers or landowners or councils who go, I want to test bed that idea. You know, and then like with the cube, the idea is that it becomes this kind of carnival. It kind of rides into town, creates a sense of place. And then people can start to go, I want a radical rethink in my neighborhood. You know, I want that radical idea that they've done in Bristol or Birmingham. You know, it takes a pioneering mayor or developer or someone to kind of own it. And we're seeing those take force, but predominantly in the big cities. You know, imagine if Basingstoke did it or, you know, apologies to anyone in Basingstoke. Um, but, you know, that kind of idea. I think those great ideas come out of the face of adversity and we're all going through a crisis. So... I think it's really interesting to have this area of design, you know, that has such a huge impact and virtually no prototyping, you know, and, and or very little experimentation and prototyping. I mean, it happens uh, through meanwhiles and pop-ups, but it's, it's pretty small. You know, people don't really, um, don't really have a collective way of learning and pushing radicals ideas forward and testing. They happen in those, you know, prototyping happens in silos, right? I guess it's through the model making or et cetera, but that knowledge is rarely experimented or, or shared and not with the end user who can sometimes not really understand or necessarily experience it because not all of us can really shrink ourselves to tiny size and really feel like we understand uh, what that experience is going to be like. Not to mention the fact that, you know, the, the, the picture, um, might not be a true reflection of what it's going to be like in 12 years or et cetera. And it's so remote too. And so I think that's, you know, how do we, um, how do we change the way that we work to something that is more, like you said, a, a dynamic master plan model and, and kind of ways for people to, to be engaged in the process and understanding that, that they're that at that red line moment, uh, you know, at that red line location, that that's a not a not a kind of border that that's an opportunity um and uh, yeah i mean i think one of the challenges of radical rethink is that it's so open so then you're like well if it's everything then what is it uh, and so if we have to define it and say okay if it has to be anything what is it what is it wow um i would like to see it you know in my head, extra points if you're coming at it with a multidisciplinary team and you're not just sat in your one studio kind of, you know. There's so many of us in our small studios working in, on our own. And I think if you work collaboratively, you get that critical eye and that drive and you get that conversation. And, it, and it's a shared thing. So it's not just a, this idea is great, but I'm not sure. Or, and then you get it out there and everyone kind of either goes, this is amazing or they kill it straight away. Um, and ideas from non-professionals, like bring them into the team? I, like think there have, I think there have been already, yeah. I mean, I would welcome them. We've always worked with fashion designers or food designers or whoever because you get that. You know, why are you looking at it that way? You completely, you know, it's not the question. 
it's what you it's not the answer it's the question you're asking is just not looking at it from the right way and you know i come from a skateboarding and bmxing thing and it's that idea that the guy who's winning is always the one with the biggest grin on his face not the guy who's doing the best or most elaborate trick and i think sometimes it's the guy in the corner or the girl in the corner or whoever that's just silently working away and not being bombastic that starts to really tell and i hope that this provides a platform for some of those ideas to really come to the fore and and get the maybe the time they the airspace that they need and what that could be i really don't know but you know you could go from sort of reclaim the streets back in the day to something much more formalized and, and sort of bureaucratic and policy and start should really inform how we address climate change or you know we've got to look at how we create a post-pandemic world and i'm considering how we create a you know preventative pandemic world this isn't the first i don't believe in sounds terrible to say but i think the way the world is it's all interlinked and so if we're going to be positive and optimistic we've got to look at creating better spaces and landscape for me is a key starting point because it has so many things kind of tied to it whether that's economics culture environment social you know i think it's just creating that better understanding landscape architecture seems to have lost its place or its conviction and Again, you know, I am only saying that because I am one, and but I want to work with as many different people from different places as possible because that's where the richness comes. And you know, even the Black Lives Matter thing, I can't, I can't, I feel uncomfortable designing places for people because I'm not representative of everyone. And so, if we start to make an inclusive industry, we'll start to make more democratic places. Um, so again, I think you're not alone in a in a profession to say, you know, I've, I've met many architects or even uh, people working within larger developer organizations who say, I feel like we've lost our way for planners. You know, I feel like we're not doing the work that we need to do and just not being completely clear on how to change that system, how to uh, change the direction and what what would be the ingredient? I think it is such a complex system. It's another Jane Jacobs thing about a complex form of order. And we've got to kind of all do a, li a little to change it. You, you need a collective um, behavioral shift. And I think what's so important, like you said about place narrative, this is about professional narrative. You know, what is the story of what we do and how we do it? And changing that story from God-like mm -hmm. uh, delivery to a different a different shared story about the city and the places we want to create the way we want to make them and and how do we tell that story we need it we need a new story yeah yeah i mean i'd love to talk to those people you know i'd love to happily talk to all of them and just you know that's where i would really enjoy it is not working with landscape architects but working with the frustrated planner or engineer or ecologist and go yeah but you've got great ambition why are we all not talking together? And maybe this is the platform that brings that to light. Okay, Which, let's you know. do it. I just have to say thank you. Thank you for bringing the idea to the developer, first of all. And thank you for um, entertaining my mad idea. Um, and likewise, thanks to uh, young Christian and Romy at Bestra, who are you know, a dynamic uh, furniture producer from Scandinavia, who's kindly helped to join this mad idea and take it forward. And so if people want to send it in, it, maximum couple pages of uh, A4, just type out your idea and email it. We just wanted to make it as easy as possible, you know, and 
um, the email is editorial at thedeveloper.live. And we're hoping to get them in and read them at the end of August. And then um, we're going to shortlist those ideas as are going to present to a panel. We're going to feedback. We're going to try and work with those ideas, put these teams together. And then hopefully at the festival, we're going to present some of the new stories on the way we're going to go forward together. If you enjoyed this podcast and you like what we do, please consider supporting us on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com slash the developer UK. Thanks a lot. This podcast has been brought to you by The Developer, produced by Simon Mercer, with music by Fortet. I'm Christine Murray, and you can reach me on Twitter at, at TC Murray.